Hello, everyone, and welcome to Building the Machine, a new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Over these 12 episodes, we are going to bring you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you'll see how the machine was constructed, all the highs, all the lows, and the legacy that remains. Each week, we'll be bringing you a new episode, focusing on a single year from 1969 to 1979. If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, you're going to enjoy the chance to experience the story as if you were there and learn more about the names and events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. We'll also include our thoughts on what was different about baseball in that era, from salary negotiations to the way the game was played to the things that happened that made this team become what it became. If you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, this is going to be a fun blast from the past. This is episode number four. Welcome to Cincinnati, Joe Morgan. I'm Chad Dotson, and joining me now to discuss the 1972 Cincinnati Reds is Bill Lack. How are you today, Bill? I'm doing great, and I'm really excited to talk about the 72 season, which is, I think, was one of the most interesting seasons in, in, in the Reds' big red machine era. And, and also, this is when they really started to change the way the team played. And we'll get into that in a little while. Yeah, some of the things we spoke about in episode number three that, that Bob Housem saw coming along and wanted to kind of reshape the Reds to fit their stadium and the style of baseball at that time, here we finally start seeing that uh, come into play. 1972 as a year was uh, important, not just in Cincinnati Reds history, but it was also, Bill, the longest year ever. Did you know this? It seemed really long to me. <laughs> I bet it did. Two leap seconds were added during this 366-day year. Uh, which has not been repeated in the in the time since. So the longest year ever by a full one second. Also in the news that year, comedian George Carlin was arrested by Milwaukee police for public obscenity for reciting his seven words you can never say on television speech. Do you remember the, uh, the, the uh, tumult and the uproar over George Carlin back then? Oh, yeah, I, I have that. I think I got that record, and I've got Class Clown, I think, still downstairs. And I still know the seven words you can't say on television. Well, you can't say them on this podcast either, Bill. <laughs> also that year, Atari released the Pong video game, and the world was never the same. Video games have taken over, although they've become a little bit uh, more intricate than Pong. But at the time, Pong was fun to play. Pong. Pong. <laughs> Very good. Um, More important news that uh, that year, 1972, five White House operatives were arrested for burglarizing the offices of the Democratic National Committee. The Watergate scandal was born, but President Richard Nixon went on to win in a landslide that November re-election over Senator George McGovern. Uh, Bill, what else was in the in the news that year? Well, that was the year of the, the terrorist attack on the Israeli Olympic team in Munich, and when 11 Israeli athletes were murdered in September. And it was also the year that the last American ground troops left Vietnam. So a really significant year uh, all the way around. Also in pop culture, it was significant. Bill, I'm going to let you choose where you want to go first. Music, movies, television, or sports? Let's, let's do movies, because it was a really weird year for movies. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the highest grossing film was The Godfather, all-time classic. A uh, couple of other good ones were What's Up, Doc? with uh, Peter Bogdanovich, Ryan O'Neill, and Barbara Streisand. Also released that year were Deliverance and Cabaret. Also released that year were um, Jeremiah Johnson, Everything You Always Want to Know About Sex, Deliverance, 
and John Wayne made the Cowboys that year. But the, the weird thing to me was the highest grossing films in 1972. Number eight was a, a thing called Fritz the Cat. It was an X-rated animated movie. <laughs> what a time to be alive. But what's even stranger is that the number four highest grossing movie that year was a, called Behind the Green Door, another <laughs> X-rated movie. So two of the top ten rated, you know, highest grossing films in 72 were X-rated movies. How strange is that? And we've already gone completely off the rails in 1972. Yeah, it's completely bizarre, especially in the year you're right, where uh, so many great movies. The Godfather, obviously one of the greatest movies, if not the greatest movie of all time. Music of in 1972. The biggest hit singles, one that we mentioned, was actually released in 71, but the biggest hit single of the year was American Pie by Don McLean and number two, Harry Nilsson's Without You. That was the uh, year that Aerosmith signed their first uh, record contract with Clive Davis and Columbia Records. Some significant bands disbanded at that uh, in that year. Credence Clearwater Revival, Jefferson Airplane, and the Velvet Underground. So what do you remember about music from 1972, Bill? Well, look, I'm looking at the at the Billboard's Top 100 for that year, and man, there's a bunch of really bad songs on there. <laughs> uh, the Candy Man from Sammy Davis Jr. was number five. Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me by Mac Davis was number eight. I, I get to 11 before I find one that I really like, and that was Let's Stay Together by Al Green. But there were some there were some really really good songs that are good albums. Actually, the other single I wanted to talk about, number thirty two, was "Nights in White Satin" by Moody Blues. But four albums that jumped out at me when I looked at the, at this list was "The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust" and "The Spiders from Mars" by David Bowie, "Exile on Main Street" by The Stones, "Machine Head" by Deep Purple, and "Eat a Peach" by the Allman Brothers, which was the last record that they did with before when Dwayne, before Dwayne Allman died. And you just mentioned Sammy Davis Jr. As usual, he's going to get at least two mentions on this episode. Sammy Davis Jr. was part of the, one of the biggest, uh, maybe the biggest moment in television that year when he made a guest appearance on All in the Family. Of course, that uh, that show featured Archie Bunker, and uh, who was a, a noted bigot, I guess. And Sammy Davis Jr. came on, and uh, that was a that was a big moment in pop culture at that time. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. In fact, I, I think I saw that episode repeated not too long ago, and. The, the premise is that Archie was driving a cab and Sammy was in his ca in his car and he left his briefcase, I believe, in, in Archie's car and he ended up coming to the bunker household. And I won't I won't take, cheat and you know, I won't give any more spoilers on that. But if you ever get a chance to see the episode, it's really really good. Bill, I want you to know that I appreciate the fact that you're really uh, recognizing that we we don't want any spoilers here on this program, even 50 years later. That's right. <laughs> that was the year 1972 that The Price Is Right premiered. On CBS, been running ever since. And Dick Clark hosted his New Year's Rockin' Eve for the very first time. Some shows that debuted that year. MASH, Maud, Sanford and Son, Bob Newhart, and Kung Fu. All right, let's move to sports. The Boston Bruins defeated the Rangers, New York Rangers, four games to two to win the Stanley Cup. And uh, Bobby Fischer defeated Boris Spassky in a chess match in Reykjavik Island, becoming the first American world chess champion. I know you were a big chess fan back then and still are, Bill. What do you think about Bobby Fischer? Bobby Fischer's a nut. <laughs> that may be true. <laughs> Alle allegedly. Allegedly, for the record. Um, speaking, speaking as a judge, it's allegedly. Huh? Exactly. So, And then uh, a, a highlight and a low light also in sports that year, right, Bill? Yeah, uh, Roberto Clemente 
uh, collected his 3,000th hit against the Mets. It'd be the final hit of his regular the regular season of his of his career uh, d- due to his uh, plane crash he died in trying to take uh, hurricane aid into Nicaragua on New Year's Eve. Yeah, yeah, and we'll t- we'll actually that uh, will play in a little bit later uh, when we talk about the postseason in 1972. Born in 72, Ben Affleck, Gwyneth Paltrow, Eminem, Shaquille O'Neal, baseball Hall of Famer Chipper Jones, football star Jerome Bettis, hockey star. Yaramir Yager, U.S. soccer star Mia Hamm, and Bill's favorite musical artist of all time, the notorious B.I.G. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Uh, died that year Jackie Robinson, former President Harry Truman, and J. Edgar Hoover. So 1972, Bill. Any other thoughts on 72 before we get back into the baseball side of it? Nope, I'm ready to talk some Reds baseball in 1972, and we got a great place to start here, a, a, a a franchise-changing moment. So the Reds finished uh, in 1971, as you, as you heard from uh, Episode 3. They finished with 79 and 83 record. And it was a really uh, a drop-off from the World Series year of 1970. So Bob Housen, we noted at the end of the last show, knew some things had to change, and boom, something changed uh, pretty quickly after the regular season ended. I'm going to let you go ahead and get into that, Bill. Well, Sparky later said that, as we said at the end of the last podcast, the one name that kept coming up as they, as they looked around was Joe Morgan. Sparky later said that they were all pushing to get Morgan. He said Alex Grammis, who was the Reds' third base coach at the time, was probably pushing the hardest, and he really felt that Morgan's speed could be a key to, to turning this Reds' offense into something special. But as much as the Reds liked Morgan on the field, Housen was concerned about rumors that Morgan was a troublemaker. And that he didn't get along with his manager in, in Houston, Harry the Hat Walker, who, if you've read Ball Four, going back to Ball Four, you know a little bit about Harry. And, and Housen was always very conscious of, of wanting, as we've talked about before, Reds-type players, guys that were aggressive and clean living and good attitudes and like that. So what happened was that, that Ray Shore, who was the Reds super scout, he knew a lot of people in the Houston organization. And he made some calls, and, and he found out, what he found out was that Morgan really wasn't a problem. That Walker was in a kind of an abrasive guy, and he had a lot of enemies in baseball, and a lot of them in Houston. And, and Morgan and Jimmy Wynn, another Cincinnati guy, and, and two first base prospects, Bob Watson and John Mayberry, who both had huge, long, solid, big league careers, and Bob Watson went on to be a big wig in, in Major League Baseball. They all had problems with Walker. One thing they had in common is they were black. And so... In addition to many of the other issues with with Walker, uh, the players believed he was a bigot. Morgan even talked about this in his book, uh, Joe Morgan, A Life in Baseball. But Shore got enough information that that he he convinced Housen that Morgan wasn't a problem. Shore ended up being one of Morgan's biggest fans and boosters because he believed that Morgan possessed one attribute that was vital to Housen, that Morgan was a winner. Before we move on any further, it's really interesting to see that uh, there was questions about Morgan's attitude or whether he would fit in with the Reds. When it turns out, he was kind of the ideal Cincinnati Red in a lot of ways. He was smart. He was uh, aggressive, like you talked about, uh, great speed, and absolutely a winner. So it's it's funny in retrospect to think that there were some actual questions about whether or not he could be the guy that he became. But really, at the time, uh, he wasn't considered to be future Hall of Famer Joe Morgan. So, But, but Bob Housen did feel it was a good match, didn't he? Yeah, he did. I mean, he, before the, this point, he was just Joe Morgan. He was just some second baseman for Houston. He hadn't had a whole lot of success in the big leagues. And, and you know, and, and like I said, like you said, 
we're thinking in retrospect of, of all-time great Joe Morgan, maybe the second best second baseman in the history of baseball. Well, that wasn't what they were thinking in the fall of 71 and over the winter of 71, 72. So now the, the Reds, uh, Bob Hausman thought that Houston and, and mm-hmm. Cincinnati could match up because the, the Reds needed their speed and Houston needed a first baseman. So September of 71, Bob Hausman calls Houston's general manager, Speck Richardson, also of ball four fame. And Hausam initially proposed a deal one for one, Joe Morgan for Lee May. That didn't go down, but they continued talking, didn't they? Yeah, they talked, you know, over the next couple of months. And Morgan talks in his book about he'd heard about he was going to Philly for an ex-Red, Darren Johnson, and Joe Horner and Denny Doyle. Then he heard that the Reds wanted him, and he called Sparky. And Sparky didn't want to get hung up on, you know, get called for tampering. And he told Morgan that, these things just kind of have a way of working themselves out. <laughs> yeah, understatement of the century. So now here's what I want to ask you about, Bill, because uh, you lived through the 70s and the, the rivalries of the Reds. And at one point, it seemed like it was going to happen. The Reds certainly thought it was going to happen that the Astros were going to send Joe Morgan to the Dodgers in exchange for Wes Parker. And, and when the Reds heard about it, they contacted uh, Speck Richards and asked him to hold off until the Reds could put together a final package. And Richardson agreed to wait. Uh, although Houston had evidently already privately given up on that deal because Parker may or may not have vetoed a trade to Houston. But I want you to imagine if Joe Morgan had been sent to Los Angeles in late 71 instead of to Cincinnati. I don't want to think about that. Can you imagine? No, I, I can't. I, I just, you know, you wonder what they'd have done with Davey Lopes. He probably would end up playing the outfield. But I, <laughs> the idea of Joe Morgan and Dodger Blue just... It makes, you know, I, I throw up a little bit at my mouth. You know, people, fans today that didn't live through that or haven't read about it or really uh, don't know a lot about the machine don't really understand how the Dodgers, who were a really, really good team throughout the 70s, but couldn't get over the hump because they were behind the Reds. They, they were in the same division. And the Dodgers and the Reds were huge, huge rivals. And you you got to think, maybe the balance of power shifts to L.A. from Cincinnati instead of Cincinnati becoming the big red machine. Maybe it's the the ugly blue machine or something out there in Los Angeles because of what Joe Morgan became. Although I don't know that Joe Morgan would have been the same type of player or, as he was playing in Riverfront, but still it's just thinking about him in Dodger blue. I agree with you. That makes you shudder. Now, Bill, I want you to ask you to continue and tell us what happened as the negotiations continued along and how did we finally get to a point where this trade was actually made? So as we, as we move along, the teams started talking a little bit more and, they, and, the, and the trade got bigger. As we know now, you know, if, if, if Lee May went to Houston, well, Tony Perez would go from third to first. Well, Morgan's coming to Cincinnati, so Houston's going to need a second baseman. So the Reds agreed to give up all-star gold glove, former rookie of the year, Tommy Helms. Well, now we're going to, since Perez is moving to first, we need a third baseman. Well, Houston had a guy named Dennis Mankey who was a, a veteran, mostly a shortstop, but he could also play third. So, so we're looking pretty good there. May and Helms had more perceived value than Morgan and Mankey. That's surprising to read that now. Again, that's another thing in retrospect. But Lee May was a pretty big star at the time, and Tommy Helms was an all-star and, and rookie of the year, and was really highly regarded, whereas uh, Joe Morgan was, again, just a just a guy at that point. So it's funny to think that, that the, the Reds were able to up the ante. Well, and, and May was coming off a huge year in 71, Probably his his biggest career year, and and hugely both of them were hugely popular in Cincinnati. So here we are, you know, the, the Reds think they're get they're not getting enough value back. 
And the Reds still needed had needs in the outfield and on the pitching staff. And there were two guys that they thought really highly of, Jack Billingham and Cesar Geronimo. Scherger, George Scherger, the Reds bench coach, he, he managed Billingham in the minors in the Dodger system. He really liked him. And the Reds liked the scouting report on Geronimo. He hadn't been, he hadn't been in the big leagues too much. I think he only had like 127 major league at bats. But everything they heard about his arm and his speed seemed like it was perfect for Riverfront. He had a nine-foot stride when he was running. And, and, and the more Housen learned about Geronimo, the more important he became to the deal. In fact, there's a report that at one point Houston pulled Geronimo out of the deal and Housen was going to call the whole deal off. Well, and Geronimo, you know, uh, is maybe not the biggest piece in this trade, but does become a significant part of the Big Red Machine. And So the deal was finalized at the winter meetings in Phoenix. How did that go down? Well, since, since Houston was giving up Billingham and Geronimo, they wanted somebody else. Housen threw in a, a substitute player, Jim, super sub Jimmy Stewart, who we talked a little bit about in, in the last episode of the one before that where he was traded to the Reds. So the Reds wanted something else, too, and, and the um, Astros threw in Ed Armbruster, who we would talk about. We probably won't hear. We probably won't mention him again until 75. <laughs> but we will in 75, no question. Yes. Monday, November 29, 1971, Housem gathered all of his front office staff who'd made the trip to the winter meetings in Phoenix and then sequestered them, basically, until the trade was announced because he didn't want any, anyone leaking the info to the press. Uh, at the time, protocol required advance notice of any trade, so Housem sent a brief note, said a major deal is going to be announced at 3 o'clock p.m., but no teams were mentioned in the note, and then it, then it goes down. And the Reds loved this deal. But the Reds were aware when they made the deal that it was probably not going to be well-received in Cincinnati, and they were right, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I mean, there, there, somebody said, did the Reds get the wrong Cesar, meaning they should have gotten Cedeno instead of Geronimo? The initial reaction in the, in the Red, you know, Reds country was that, as we said earlier, Helms was really popular. And they thought, okay, we got Morgan for Helms. Both of them were second baseman. Well, what did we get for May and Stewart? You know, who are these other guys? Nobody had ever heard of these guys. <laughs> Bob Herzl, who, who we talked about, who was mentioned a little while ago, said, for Lee May, you expect to get a Willie Mays, not just some guy named Joe. <laughs> he'd, he'd later retract that statement. Some guy named Joe. Uh, Herzl had another quote that I liked. He said that uh, if the United States had traded Dwight Eisenhower to the Germans during World War II, it wouldn't have been much different than sending May and Helms to Houston. <laughs> really? I mean, that's a wow. little, little overkill, huh? So, but yeah, that's a little strong. Uh, maybe Reds fans were following uh, Herzl's lead because he was the beat writer for the Cincinnati Inquirer, but uh, either way, the Reds fans didn't like it at all, did they? No, but they came around. <laughs> they ultimately came around. And Housem kind of understood <laughs> what the objections were, uh, to a point anyway. Uh, a quote from, from Housem at the time was, I told my people we're going to make this trade, and for the future of the ball club, I think it's going to be best for us. But to be honest, I've just given the pennant this year to Houston, he said. Well, Sparky didn't agree. He said, you just won the pennant for the Cincinnati Reds. And we'll find out soon whether that was true. So that was the big deal, obviously. There were a couple of other deals that had some uh, effect on the Reds, the big red machine. You want to talk about those? Yeah, they, they traded Wayne Granger, who did three really good years for the Reds, to the to the Twins, and they got a left-hander, Tommy Hall, for him. Uh, gave, the, gave the Reds a solid left-hander in the bullpen. And they, they traded uh, Milt Wilcox to the Indians for an outfielder, Ted Ulander. Wilcox ended up having a pretty decent career once he got to, De to Detroit, but Ulander was just horrible for the Reds. So we make it to spring training, and the, the big thing about the 1972 spring training is this. It was the first time what would ultimately come the Great Eight were all in camp together. And we all know the Great Eight 
some of those would uh, not not be an important piece just yet. Take some time to get there. So I'm going to go back to the miners. But in spring of that year, the core of the quote unquote big red machine were all there together. But despite that, again, no one really knew what some of these guys were going to become. And the Reds were considered a question mark uh, at this point. I mean, they had that great 1970 season and then uh, a disappointing one and then a trade which, uh, you know, changed the team's style of play and, and their ideology and chemistry, but maybe on the surface didn't look like a trade that would, would help them as much in the present day as it would help Houston. So and there wasn't exactly a ton of optimism at that time, but Sparky kind of felt like uh, there were some reasons that 71 happened and, and it wasn't more like 70. And, and he identified several of those. Yeah, he, you know, he talked about the injuries on the pitching staff, especially to Jim Merritt and Wayne Simpson. You know, Tolan's injury. Bench and Perez both had a down years in, in 71. And the team just didn't didn't do a lot of the things that championship teams do in, in terms of execution and attitude in, in, in 71. And Sparky said camp was going to be a lot tougher in 72. And it was. He, he said player weight limits, and it was 50 bucks per pound if you were overweight. And remember, this is a different time. 50 bucks a pound would have been a lot of money in them days. He said a curfew and took the TV out of the clubhouse and, and he curtailed the post-game spread. He said there was too much interest in food and not enough on the games. And of course that helps with the $50 per pound It does for the it player does. weight limit. That's right. <laughs> so now we talked last time about spring training being a, a common uh, occurrence every year in spring training up to this time was that these bitter contract negotiations and, uh, Last the year before 1971 had had been that with Bench and, and Rose and then also the injuries, uh, Bobby Tolan trying to get over his injury. But this spring training there wasn't as much of that and there was more uh, competition I think uh, amongst the players on the field and trying to determine who's going to go where. Um, you want to talk about that for a moment, Bill? Well, you know they were worried about Tolan and he showed real early on that he he regained his speed and he looked like he was going to be you know pretty much the same player he'd been before his Achilles injuries. They moved Rose from right field to left field. They ended up determining that right field would be some combination of Geronimo, Foster, Bernie Carbo, and Hal McRae. As it went along, Carbo had a mediocre spring. In early season, he was basically just a pinch hitter. Uh, McRae, everybody knew he could hit, but he didn't play very very good defense, and, and that didn't work with the Reds' plan for defense on, on the artificial turf. Uh, Geronimo had a good spring. And eventually, uh, when the season opened, it was basically him and Foster splitting time in right field. With the pitching, uh, Jim Merritt and uh, Wayne Simpson continued to struggle with injuries. Uh, Merritt would end up spending most of the season at AAA Indianapolis, and then uh, Simpson would start there and finally be called up in May. And Sparky made the decision kind of early on to, that his his guys were going to be Gary Nolan, Don Gullett, and Jack Billingham. And actually, in the first month of the season, those guys started all the games other than uh, than two games late in the late in the first month where uh, Merritt and uh, McLaughlin got the starts. So those were really the big three, again, a different time. And so Sparky uh, had decided that these are our guys, these are going to be our workhorses, and he picked the right ones, I guess. He also made another decision that has been kind of tossed down in legend in Cincinnati Reds legend through the year, uh, the decision he made with respect to the clubhouse and the, and the lockers. Uh, tell me about that, Bill. Well, what he did, he decided to put Morgan's locker right near Rose's and it, it ended up becoming one of the focal points of the locker room and, and became a big part of the, the needling that went on between Bench, Perez, Rose and Morgan because they didn't leave, you know they didn't leave each other alone for a minute and and this really bonded uh, Morgan and, and Rose. When, when Morgan came over, Rose immediately welcomed him to the team and, and even offered to help him find housing 
in Tampa for spring training and then again in Cincinnati. And from everything you've read, Morgan really appreciated the offer. Rose had remembered many, many years before that he'd been welcomed to the team by by veteran, you know, the two big guys on the team at the time, Frank Robinson and Veda Pinson. And he never forgot about that. In fact, uh, George Foster had also said that Rose was the first guy that welcomed him to the team when he came over from the Giants the year before. So, so again, some of the ingredients of building the machine are, are happening right here as we're discussing it. These, this was a, a key moment because these guys are the, the group that's going to lead this team to become the bigger machine are finally together in that locker room. Now, as the season gets ready to start, Lots of different favorites for the for the National League West. Uh, some people picked uh, Houston. Some people picked L.A. Some picked San Francisco, who were um, uh, the Cincinnati Inquirers. The Cincinnati Inquirer chose uh, the Astros in the division. Picked the Reds second to them. So, you know, uh, it was a it was not exactly a, a foregone conclusion that the Reds were going to do well in this division. And we said there was not much in terms of contract negotiations that got, that got bitter but other other labor problems did get bitter and there was actually there was actually the first work stoppage in baseball history tell us about that bill yeah they couldn't come to the players and the management couldn't come to agreement over the over the pension fund and uh on april 1st the players voted to strike and like you said it was the first work stoppage in baseball history which you know ended an era it was it, you know this was the beginning of the marvin miller era who much, much too late, is supposed to be put into the Hall of Fame this year. And this is where they started addressing the inequities between the players and the owners. They're going to tell you, know, they get into the reserve clause and, 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 and things like that. And a strike ended up lasting 12 days, and, and it cost the Major League Baseball eight games of the season. Okay, so we get to the opening season finally, April 15th, the opening day. The Reds and the Dodgers. The Reds lose 3-1 to one on a combined three-hitter by Don Sutton and Jim Brewer. And of those uh, three hits, Pete Rose had two of them. And so uh, an inauspicious start after a rough 1971 season. Now, there was a, a note that you had about how Riverfront Stadium's field was designed that I thought was really interesting. I'd never, I don't remember ever hearing this before. Tell me about that. Yeah, in 70-71, they had had a white line that went around the infield that designated where the infield ended, what, you know, what on a regular field would be where the dirt ends. And in 72, they erased that line. But so many players on the other teams, the infielders complained about figuring out where they were supposed to be playing that by 73, they put it back. <laughs> players don't know where to play. I like it. <laughs> um, so the Reds started slowly, lost four of their first six. Uh, at the end of April, the team was five and eight and already uh, five games behind first place at that time. Uh, the Reds' starting pitching was not good, 4.78 ERA in April, and Gary Nolan was the only starter to actually win a game in April. Jack Billingham lost his first five games. Don Gullett was diagnosed with hepatitis and uh, and taken out of the rotation. The Reds called up Ross Grimsley, recalled Wayne Simpson. And May 10th, the Reds lost their fourth game in a row. And at, at, at that time, May 10th, after losing four in a row, they were 8-13, and 13, five and a half games out of first place, and you have to kind of wonder if you are a Reds fan at that time, thinking about on that day when they had this bad start to the season again. You're coming off, if you remember two episodes ago, 1970, where they made it to the World Series. The second half of the season, the Reds were not good at all. And then they struggled for just about the entirety of 71. And at that point, if I'm a Reds fan, I'm starting to think, was was 1970 just a fluke? You know, How did, how did that actually happen uh, when this team has not been very good since midway through that 19? 70 season. Or is this team really going to do anything? 
that ends up being kind of a pivotal moment on May 10th or after losing that game. It was a game at home against the Cubs, uh, didn't it, Bill? Yeah, Sparky called a clubhouse meeting, and uh, he apparently wasn't real happy. And among other things, after chewing the whole team out, he, he told them, we will win this thing this year. And the season turned around. They went out and they won nine in a row. They went 22-6 and six and went into first place on June the 9th, and they took it over for good on the 25th. The team ended up going between May 12th and September the 16th. They played 672 baseball and went 74 and 36. And they went from four games back to eight games up. So, yeah, it immediately uh, turned around at that time. So, again, a, a, a team meeting of legendary proportions. I want to go back to something you, you mentioned earlier. Sure. That Billingham had lost his first five games after coming over in this big trade. How popular do you think he was with the fans at the time? Yeah, not much, I can imagine, especially <laughs> when you consider how popular Lee May had been and Tommy Helms. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Now, you know, he he ends up becoming a Reds Hall of Famer, but he lost his first five games for, for the team. I bet he was sweating it. <laughs> so May 19th of that year, we'll get uh, past the middle of May here, and uh, the Reds made a, a pretty significant trade for a guy who had uh, had been a contributor to uh, the 1970 the good 1970 Reds team. And, and we will see him later in this podcast as well. But the Reds traded Bernie Carbo to St. Louis for Joe Haig, a left-handed hitting uh, outfielder and first baseman. And uh, and Haig went on to have a, a pretty good season for a bench player. And this was another instance of what we've talked about with Housem and his, he wanted these Reds-types players. They felt that the, quote, carefree and eccentric Carbo needed some discipline. Uh, the Reds tried to be tough on him, but he, tough on him, but he continued to struggle. And and so they've traded Bernie Carbo away, another guy that we will revisit again in uh, about three episodes, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll hear from him and not in a good way. Exactly. Now, the Reds weren't, <laughs> uh, again, the Reds were starting to play better, but they still had some problem areas uh, around the field, didn't they? Yeah, they, they weren't happy in right field. They weren't happy at third base, and they really weren't happy at shortstop. They were, they were strong defensively, but they weren't getting a whole lot of production out of the six, seven, eight spots. Uh, Geronimo had a decent OPS, but but he didn't wasn't hitting for any power, and, and Foster was really struggling, and Haig was a bench guy that was you know giving him all he could. You know, Tolan wasn't the player he'd been in '70, but he still had a pretty good year. Um, he had a 4.9 WAR in '72 as compared to a, a 5.4 in '70, so you know a 4.9 WAR is, is nothing to to sneeze at. Yeah, Tolan had been uh, fairly effective in 70 and make it a little bit of a comeback here in 72. Another guy who did that was Johnny Bench. And from May 30th to June 3rd, Bench hit home runs in five straight games. And in a 14-game streak beginning on that May 30th date, Bench hit 10 homers and drove in 26 runs. Uh, He hit 389 during that time, scored 18 runs, uh, five intentional walks, three doubles. So Johnny Bench, MVP in 1970, uh, would admi- admittedly uh, not happy with what he did in 71, 1972. He's back to the uh, same bench we saw in 70, but perhaps even better. And a uh, big reason why the Reds became uh, what they became in 72. He really was back to being Johnny Bench, wasn't he? Yeah, and, and if you were if you were following the Reds closely at that time, this is this is kind of typical bench. When he would get hot, he you, he would be white hot on a, on a much different scale. But the same thing, if you remember Jay Bruce, when Jay Bruce would get hot, he would hit really, really well for eight or ten games. You know, he'd be really, really hot. Bench would do this, only he'd be, you know, in a different class of hot. <laughs> right, yeah. 
July 22nd, and this is a, something, a nugget that Bill discovered in preparing for this uh, podcast that I don't believe I had ever heard before. The Reds beat the Pirates 6-3 to on July 22nd, but before the game, both uh, Johnny Bench and Wayne Simpson, who was the starter of that day's game, had received phone calls in their hotel rooms offering them $2,000 to deliver a fat pitch to the Pirates' first baseman, Bob Robertson. Evidently, both reported the incident to Sparky, but the uh, investigation came to nothing. Uh, is that a story you were familiar with? Was that something that was widely reported uh, around the time? I don't I don't think I'd ever heard that before. I don't remember hearing it either. And I, the only reason, I saw it in Red Lake Journal. July 25th, the National League won the All-Star game 5-4 to in Atlanta. Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan started the game. Uh, a couple other Reds also made the National League squad, Gary Nolan and Clay Carroll. Joe Morgan wins the MVP, drove in the winning run in the 10th, and uh, also starting for the National League. This didn't make uh, fans in Cincinnati too happy, although Morgan was on the team, so that was a big thing for Cincinnati, but Lee May was also starting for the National League. Yep, then on August the 14th, this is kind of a funny story. The, 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 the Reds were playing the Braves, and the Braves had a, 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 a favorite attraction called Susie the Sweeper. She was a teenage girl who got dressed in hot pants and swept off the bases and home plate with a broom during the fifth inning and gave the umpire a kiss. It was a different time, well, Bill. Yes, it was. During Atlanta's annual husband and wives game, prior to the Reds-Braves game, Bench came out onto the field in his uniform shirt and a pair of shorts and swept off the bases and gave a kiss to heavyweight boxer Jerry Corey, who was serving as the umpire for the game. And Bench uh, did some of the same when the game actually started. Uh, five RBIs and a homer, double and single, and Reds won 12-2. So, so Johnny Bench was uh, Susie the Sweeper that day. Susie he was a special kind of guy that day. He was a special, special kind jack of guy. Jack of all trades that day. He covered all the bases, so to speak. <laughs> Literally. Okay, so we get through August. At the end of August, the Cincinnati Reds are 78 and 46. They're seven and a half games up. And uh, as, as the calendar turns to September, and, and more of the same, the Reds won uh, one to nothing on September 1st in 12 innings over the Expos at Riverfront. Ross Grimsley and Clay Carroll combined on a shutout, and that was the day, September 1st, 1972, that Pete Rose would take over the all-time franchise leader uh, leaderboard in hits by collecting his 1,882nd hit to, to go past Veda Pinson for career hits for, as a Cincinnati Red. And that was the last hit Pete Rose ever got as well, I think. I think he gets a couple more. He got one or two. So uh, September 15th, uh, the Reds and the Padres set a National League record for strikeouts in a nine-inning game, 28. Freddie Norman, friend of the podcast, Freddie Norman, struck out 15 Reds in a complete game shutout. Don Gullett struck out 11 in seven innings. And Pedro Bourbon got uh, two in relief. The Padres won one to nothing. Now, Freddie Norman, I said friend of the podcast, and he is, but he was actually starting for the Padres at that time. And in 18 games versus the Reds, before joining the Reds later, he was 6-2 and with a 3.2 ERA. One of our favorite guys, Freddie Norman. Now, tell me, again, back to Johnny Bench and sort of entertainment. Tell me what happened on September 16th, Bill. Well, Bench had his own TV show in Cincinnati, and, and I think he thought they were going to be taping a TV show that night. And what ended up happening was he was surprised by the show This Is Your Life, which was a television show that had been on for a million years with Ralph Edwards, where they came down and they told your whole life and they showed pictures and you know people from your past came on as guests and that kind of thing. So they surprised Bench at this thing on September the 16th with Johnny Bench, This Is Your Life, at Riverfront. Uh, Bench's mother was in the crowd that night. She almost didn't make the show because she got hit in the head with a foul ball in the seventh inning. Yikes. Now, that month was a big month for Johnny Bench in a couple of other ways as well. Uh, In in that month, he hit his 150th home run. 
th just three months shy of his 25th birthday. Only uh, Eddie Matthews, Mel Lott, Jimmy Fox, Mickey Mantle, and King Griffey Jr. reached that mark at a younger age. Hall of Famers all. But then uh, in late September, he had this uh, routine exam with, the, uh, with his physician, and this was a, a point that Johnny Bench would uh, al always claim it, and a lot of observers were well, would affect him for the rest of his career. Tell us about that, Bill. Well, they, they found a lesion on one of his lungs, and they didn't really know what it was. It would have to be, it would, after the season when he had surgery and they cracked his chest, they found out it wasn't cancerous. But like you said, Bench would always say that after they cracked his chest, he was really the never the same player again. And you have to wonder how good Johnny Bench could have been if that hadn't happened at age 24. Well, and if you look at his career numbers, he was always good, obviously, but that was at age 24. That was kind of the high watermark for Johnny Bench. Uh, he was very good uh, the rest of his career. I don't want to uh, underestimate what Johnny Bench was able to do, a clear inner circle Hall of Famer. But yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's some reason to believe he could have been even better, which is almost impossible to believe. The Reds finally clinched the division on September 26th, the National League West, with a 4-3 to victory in Houston. Ross Grimley picked up his 14th win, Clay Carroll his 33rd save, and Johnny Bench his 37th home run. So the regular season is over. And Bill... We move on to the playoffs, and this, we're going to talk about a lot of, over the course of this series, we've already talked about one really exciting World Series, if you're an Orioles fan, and but we're going to talk about some, some postseason series that, there are several of them that are just all-timers to me, and this whole postseason was just amazing. How much do you remember of, of following the postseason in 1972? Oh, I, I remember it vividly, um, and I'll talk a little bit about that when we get into the World Series, but... Uh, this was this was my first exposure as a I mean I was a fan in, in 70 I remember watching the World Series in 70 but at this point I was invested I mean I lived and died by the Cincinnati Reds and you know I couldn't wait for the playoffs to start and this was these were both Reds were going to be playing the Pirates who were the defending world champions uh, they were considered the best two teams in baseball right then the, the Pirates had two future Hall of Famers in Clemente and Stargell, and they had a bunch of guys that could hit. Robertson, Sanguian, uh, Dave Cash, Oliver. Uh, this was expected to be the World Series, you know, for, for better, you know, for all intents and purposes. And as it turned out, it was an extremely exciting series. Game one opened at Three River Stadium in Pittsburgh. P Pittsburgh had their ace, 19-game uh, winner Steve Blass. Uh, who's known for something different now, but at the time was an extremely effective pitcher. He was their starting pitcher against Don Gullett for the Reds in Game 1. Joe Morgan homered in the first inning, but then the Pirates came back, scored three in the bottom half, and cruised to a 5-1 win. So, again, here's another situation where I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a Reds fan at that time. After the heartbreak of 70 uh, and then the, the year of set in 1971 that was disappointing all around, I'm like, oh, man, here we are in the playoffs, and it's going awry again. The next day, perhaps Reds fans were a little more excited, right? Well, they, they maybe felt like they, they, you know, they, didn't, they weren't ready to jump off a bridge. Um, game two was Bob Moose for the Pirates and Jack Bellingham for the Reds. He recovered from losing that first five games. And, and Moose didn't even get out of the first inning. He gave up five hits and four runs without even getting it out. Uh, two run doubles by Tolan and Perez. And, and Bellingham pitched four and two thirds. And Tommy Hall pitched the last four and a third. And the Reds hit, won the game 5-3. to three. Morgan hit his second home run of the series in the eighth, and the series is knotted at one apiece. 
So game three comes back to Riverfront Stadium, and here the Pirates come back uh, into Cincinnati and retake the series lead. They get a 3-2 victory in game three. Now the Reds, again, had jumped out to a 2-0 lead in this one by the third inning, but then the Pirates scored a run in the fifth, a run in the seventh, a run in the eighth, and take the victory. Gary Nolan got the start in that one. Nelson Bryles for the, for the Pirates. Uh, Nolan threw six innings, uh, gave up four hits and, and one run. But the bullpen just couldn't hold it. And Clay Carroll had been so good all season long, an all-star that year, just uncharacteristically ineffective. Allowed inherited runner to score in the seventh and the eighth, and allowed a run in the eighth. Um, so walked three in his uh, 1.2 innings. So just could not uh, could not hang on to that lead, and they let game three, a winnable game, escape them as they move on to game four, also in Cincinnati. And the Reds on the brink of elimination, one game away from being eliminated. Remember, this was a best-of-five series at that time. And Sparky does something that, uh, well, who's maybe had his hand forced, but in an elimination game that you probably don't want to do. Tell us about that. Well, he went to his rookie. He went to Ross Grimsley, uh, who'd been really good since he came up in May. But, you know, you're on the brink of elimination here. We'll get your fans are getting out. They're on the edge of that bridge. You know, you've lost the World Series. Your next year is disappointing. And now you're down, you know, three to one or two to one and, and facing elimination here. And he turns to Ross Grimsley. Well, what does Grimsley do? He gives him his best game of the season. He throws a, a complete game, two-hitter. The only run he gave up was a solo home run to Clemente. And the Reds went went on and won 7-1. to one. And On top of that, Grimsley had two hits. So Game 5 is still at Cincinnati. So it's uh, finally the first Game 5 in divisional play history, in NLCS uh, history. Uh, and, Bill, I'm going to let you ask you to just tell me about that, if you would. Game five, big game here. Who's going to the World Series? Well, and I, and I really remember this game. And, and I remember it being a rainy, cold-ish Wednesday afternoon. And it was blast against Gullet again. And this would end up being a huge, dramatic Reds win. And Sparky pulled Gullet in the fourth. He'd, given up, he'd end up giving up three runs on six hits and three-plus. But the Reds' bullpen would just lock it down the rest of the way. Jim Verdon, the Pirates manager, made a big mistake in the fourth when he let Steve Blass hit with a 3-1 lead and one out rather than bunt. Blass hit into a double play to end an inning. Geronimo hit a home run in the bottom of the fifth and make it 3-2, and Geronimo going into that at bat was 1-17 for 17 in the series. And then the Reds got Bourbon to throw two scoreless innings and Hall threw three scoreless innings, and it went to the bottom of the ninth with the Reds down 3-2. to two. So what the Pirates did in the ninth was they came out with the hammer, Dave Justy. I mean, he was he was one of the best relievers in baseball at the time. In 71, he led the National League in saves, and he might have even been better in 72. He didn't have as many saves. He only had 22, but he dropped his ERA to 1.93. And going into this game through the series, he'd had two and two-thirds scoreless innings and only given up two hits and struck out three. But leading off the inning for the Reds, down three to two is Johnny Bench. And on a one-two pitch... Bench hit maybe his most famous home run ever. He hit a home run to right field, which was very unusual for Bench because you know he was a dead pull hitter. And he said later that he expected Justy to throw him that slider away, and he was he was really trying real hard not to pull the ball. And he had told Morgan before he go to, went to the plate that I'm taking him to right field. The other kind of funny thing is that Bench's mom came down to the railing to wish him luck, and she told him to hit a home run. So I'm sure that's why he did. Exactly. No question about it. Now, but uh, Pirates manager Verdon, he decided to stay with his ace reliever at that time, even though the game was tied, which it makes sense. But how'd that work out for him? Well, he gave up a hit to Perez, and they brought they brought in Foster to pinch run. 
Then he gave up a hit, another hit to Mankey, which sent Foster to second base. And at that point, he'd seen enough of Dave Justy that day. So he brought in Bob Moose, who'd started game two and hadn't gotten an out. And Moose got Cesar Geronimo to fly out to right field, but Foster took third. So we got we got Foster at third base with one out. Moose then got Daryl Chaney to pop up. So now you got now you got Foster at third base with two outs. It looks like the Pirates might escape, and this game might go to extras. So what what Sparky does is he sends up Hal McCray to pinch hit for Clay Carroll, and on a three one pitch, Moose threw it in the dirt. Foster scored from third, and we were going back to the World Series. <laughs> the game winning run, series winning run, on a wild pitch. And uh, I know you you had mentioned you told me one this is one of your uh, most vivid Reds memories, isn't it? Oh yeah, I remember jumping around from the furniture in my in my living room at home. I was like jumping from the couch to the chair and a chair to the couch. And and when the Foster was on third base, I think my face was like three inches from the television set. <laughs> and was your mom sitting there watching the game with you? No, and this, and this is a funny story because my mom worked at a car dealership and they had season tickets and. The guy, you know, of course, the guys always got the salesmen and the managers and all that stuff always got to go to the games. You know, they, they never let the women go. So the women complained. The women worked in the office. Well, they told the women, well, you got y'all can go to the fifth game because they didn't believe there'd be a fifth game. Well, there was a fifth game. <laughs> so my mom and the women in the office were sitting in the stands that day when Bench hit the home run. Got to see one of the biggest games. And really in the history of this franchise, when you consider the number of times they'd been to the World Series before, and they're back in it. So uh, sort of a down note, uh, that was Roberto Clemente's final game in his career. Uh, on New Year's Eve, he was dying in a plane crash, as we said earlier. He was trying to take supplies into Nicaragua for earthquake uh, relief and uh, would be elected to the Hall of Fame almost immediately. The five-year wait was waived. First Latin and, and Caribbean player in Shrine. So the National League Championship Series is over. The Reds are moving on. And, and one thing that's interesting that's different from today's game the, the time of these games, under two hours for game one, two hours, 43 minutes for game two, two hours, 23 minutes for game three, game four, under two hours, an hour, 58 minutes, and game two five, two hours and 19 minutes. And a game like that, that, uh, you know, with all the tension and close games nowadays would last four and a half hours. It was two hours and 19 minutes. Again, it was a different time. Yeah, you wonder how much of it is, is player moves and how much of it is commercials. I think it's both. I think it's some, yep. a little of both. Yep. Uh, Pete Rose went 9-for-20 with four doubles in the series. Johnny Bench 6-for-18 with a double, a triple, and a home run. Uh, they were the hitting stars for the Reds. On the mound, Ross Grimsley had that great game that we talked about, the two-hitter, two-hit-complete game. Jerry Nolan had a, had a great start. But really, the pitching star was probably a guy they just uh, they acquired right before the season we talked about. Tom Hall threw seven and a third innings in two games, uh, gave up a run, and struck out eight batters. So... Let's go on to the World Series, Bill. And what uh, what's the kind of the overarching uh, thing that you remember about this about this 1972 World Series? Well, so many people talk about rightly talk about the 75 World Series as the greatest World Series ever. But I'll tell you what, you can make the argument that the 72 series it went seven games, and six of them were one run games, and you were on the edge of your seat for every one of them. You can make the argument that this was, if not the greatest World Series ever, maybe the second greatest World Series ever. It was a wonder. It was an amazing, tension-filled seven games. And really, in Cincinnati, from our perspective as Cincinnati fans, if uh, the Game 7 had finished in a different way, maybe we would remember it as the greatest series ever. But uh, the 75 series is kind of hailed by almost all baseball fans. But you're right. This one was, this one was great. And, and one of the reasons it was so great was, as coming in, it was kind of a, a game or a series of contrasts. 
the reds were the, the, the straights, so to speak. No, no beards, mustaches, short hair. Uh, you know, we've talked about what Bob has won for his team versus Charlie Finley, who had, you know, what Bill called him the bewhiskered A's. They had the wild colored uniforms. They were, you know, uh, Charlie Finley was kind of a, kind of a nut a little bit, frankly. He was, he was kind of a, uh, <laughs> kind of a wild guy and really presided over, he was considered to be, you know, not very well liked maybe by his players, but he presided over an A's team that won five straight division titles, three straight World Series. Um, he bought the A's in 60, moved them to Oakland in 68. He was the guy that wanted orange baseballs and wanted to paint the bases different colors and thought World Series games should be played at night. He was wrong about that, but that's what ended up happening. Charlie Finley and the manager Dick Williams, neither one are very well liked, but they were a really different type of team than Cincinnati, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Uh, like you said, it was it was a, such a contrast. You know, they were the young hip guys, and we were the old staid conservatives. But going into the series, the Reds were big, big favorites, and, and, and even more so because Oakland was going to be playing without Rezzy, Reggie Jackson, who got injured in the American League uh, Championship Series. I believe sliding into home plate. I think he hurt a hamstring, if I remember right. So the Reds were big favorites over Oakland. Eighteen years after this, Oakland were big favorites over the Reds in the World Series in a different uh, series for a different team. Game one was at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati, Ohio. Kenny Holtzman was the pitcher for the Athletics, 19-game winner. He'd come over to the A's from the Chicago Cubs before that 72 season in a trade for Rick Monday. He'd face off against Gary Nolan for Cincinnati. Now, Holtzman, if you remember last episode, it was the last time he'd ever appeared at Riverfront when he threw a no-hitter back in 1971. So game one... In the second, with a runner on first, Gene Tennis homered to deep left. That put the A's up two to nothing. Now, in the bottom of the second, Reds loaded the bases were on, with no outs, but were only able to get one run when Concepcion scored Johnny Bench on a fielder's choice. Bottom of the fourth, Reds had two on with none out. Dennis Minky scored Bench on a fielder's choice. That tied the game, but the Reds couldn't get anything else, so it was uh, tied at two to two. We move on to the fifth, and Gene Tennis again. Uh, he set a major league record that uh, since was tied by Andrew Jones by homering in his first two World Series at bats to give the A's a 3-2 to two lead. Gene Tennis has been one of the kind of strangest stories in World Series history, uh, his performance in the series, right? Oh, yeah. I, it's funny because I can remember after game one or maybe it was after game two, we went up, my, we, or my family went out to dinner somewhere, and we parked, and this guy had a sign in the side of his car window that said, Tennis the Menace. <laughs> Excellent. And on the season, Tennis had hit 225, and he'd only hit five home runs all year. In the American League Championship Series against Detroit, he'd gone one for 17. And here he is hitting two home runs in his first two at-bats in, in a World Series. And, be, and before the seven, 72 Series, he'd been an average player. But after the 72 Series, he turned into a really good player. He had a roughly between a four and a six wins of a replacement career until he was like 33. Yeah, this was, I mean, he was uh, outstanding in this series out of nowhere and and turned that into a, a good career. So the Reds were down uh, by one. The bullpens kind of took over after that point. The Reds did have the time run at third base late, but with two outs, but Pete Rose uh, tried to bunt to get on and uh, the bunt, though, rolled foul. He then grounded out. The A's led the series one to nothing. So we go on to game two at Riverfront and, and Cincinnati down 1 0. How'd they respond, Bill? They went to Ross Grimsley in game two against a 20-game winner, Catfish Hunter, who had an ERA at 2.04 that day. And again, the A's jumped out in front. They were up in the bottom of the third, two to nothing. 
The first run was scored on a, on a base hit by Catfish Hunter, and the second one coming on a home run by Joe Rudy. And it stayed that way till the bottom of the ninth. They went into the ninth. They only had four hits off of Catfish Hunter. Again, we're going back to, you know, we don't have good nicknames anymore. <laughs> um, Perez led off the ninth with a single. Mankey hit a ball to left field that Hunter thought it was out. Rudy went back to the fence, jumped up, and backhanded the ball against the fence way over his head. The ball almost tore through the webbing on his glove. So then Geronimo lined the ball down the first baseline. <clears throat> Mike Hagan, who is another one of our old ball four guys, who was in as a defensive replacement for Mike Epstein, made a play on and crawls over to first base and beats Geronimo to the bag for the second out, moved Perez to second. McCray got a pinch hit single score in Perez, and then they lifted uh, Hunter for Raleigh Fingers, Hall of Famer for Hall of Famer there. And the Reds, their bench wasn't what you'd like. They brought up Julian, Julian Javier, and he popped out to end the game. And A's were up two to nothing. They'd won both games at Riverfront. Things were not looking good for the Cincinnati Reds. Yeah, brutal. You know, you, you have your first two games at home. You have an opportunity to, uh, you know, get some uh, get some momentum going after losing the last uh, World Series you were in. And of course, you go down immediately, uh, two to zero to a really good uh, Oakland team. So the series shifts back to Oakland. The game three was scheduled for October 17th, but there was rain and hail in the Oakland area that day. So that postponed the game. They ultimately played the next day, October 18th. Uh, Ronald Reagan, governor of California, threw out the first pitch. And the Reds had actually, this is a surprising point, they'd actually posted a better record on the road than at home. And, and they would need to continue that trend if they were going to get back into this series. At this point, as we move into game three, the top of the Reds order, which is Pete Rose, Bobby Tolan, Joe Morgan combined two for 23. So Jack Billingham, the the guy who came over in the big trade, ended up the season after starting slow, uh, 12 and 12, 3.08 ERA, led the team in uh, starts and complete games and shutouts and in his pitch. So uh, he, he would take the mound and be faced, uh, be opposed by Blue Moon Odom, one of the great nicknames in all of baseball. Blue Moon Odom. The game was still tied, scoreless tie. Through five innings, the pitchers were, were kind of dominating. The A's can't come to bat in the bottom of the sixth. A walk, two Reds errors on, on the two least likely players to make an error, perhaps. Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan, both gold glovers. And then an intentional walk loaded the bases. Sal Bando, the A's captain, uh, came to the plate. And Billingham induces Bando to hit into a 4-6-3 inning-inning double play. So the game remains tied until the seventh. The Reds finally were able to break through in the top half of the seventh. Tony Perez singled, he was bunted over, and then a Cesar Geronimo single scores Perez. Now Perez fell down on the wet ground rounding third, uh, but uh, George Hendrick made a weak throw in to the shortstop, Burt Campanaris, and, and who ha didn't check to see if Perez had scored. And, and Perez may not have scored if they had turned to throw the ball, but instead uh, Perez slips and still is able to score one nothing Cincinnati. Tell, me, tell us what happened at that point, from that point on, Bill. Well, in the eighth... The Reds threatened again in the eighth. Vita Blue had been brought in to replace Odom, and he, and he walked Morgan and gave up a single to Tolan. So the Reds had runners at first and third with one out. And he, at this point, Dick Williams pulled Vita Blue and brought in Raleigh Fingers. First, and the first thing Morgan did, or first thing happened, was Morgan stole second place. So Bench is at the plate, and he runs the count to three and two. And here comes Williams out of the dugout to talk to Fingers. And Williams holds up four fingers and points at first base, and he looks like he's telling fingers, put Bench on. You know, that's Morgan Stoll. Let's just put him on. 
And Morgan thought something was going on. He yelled to Bench to be alive, and and the cat, the Oakland catcher ducked down behind Bench, and they threw a called third strike on a slider, which Bench later said he probably couldn't hit anyway. But I, I would tend to think that uh, Johnny's face was pretty red at that moment. It might have been the low point in Bench's career. Uh, the A's walked Perez, and then got Mankey to pop up, so it was still one to one or one to nothing. But Clay Carroll came in, got a one, two, three, ninth. The Reds win one to nothing. And we're only down two to one. And, and again, another one run game. Uh, none of the Oakland's uh, three hits left the infield. And how about Jack Billingham's series? Pretty good. Uh, not just in this series, but his series performance over his career was pretty darn great, wasn't it? Yeah, he would end up in his career pitched 25 and a third innings in the World Series in 72, 75, and 76. And he'd allow one run for an ERA of 0.36. Uh, which was the lowest in history for any pitcher of, of 20 in, in, innings pitched at, or more at that time. So game four, we're still in Oakland. The Reds are down two games to one. The Oakland A's go back to Ken Holtzman. The Reds will turn to Don Gullett here. Both of them pitched well, only gave up one run each. Don Gullett's was to, again, Gene Tennis, his third home run of the series. I and, hate that guy. <laughs> and, and Holtzman would end up pitching in the eighth, be charged for one of the only one of his runs uh, allowed where it was earned. In the eighth inning, the Reds scored two on a two-run double. By Bobby Tolan. So we go to the bottom of the ninth. The Reds are up two to one. Pedro Borbon is in to pitch for Cincinnati. They send up a pinch hitter, Gonzalo Marquez. Now the Reds scouting report said that Marquez hit everything in the air to left field, on the ground, up the middle. Um, he'd done this in game three when he'd singled up the middle on a ball that uh, Billingham had deflected. But Concepcion had actually played with Marquez in Venezuela, and he believed that he hit ground balls in the hole and shaded him towards third in, in opposition to the Reds scouting report on him. Uh, Anderson, Sparky Anderson later said he nearly motioned Concepcion to get back closer to the middle, but he didn't. And what happens? Marquez bounces a high hopper up the middle into center field. If Concepcion had played him straight away, it's probably an out. So the scouting report was probably accurate there. Um, Dick Williams. And Anderson, and Anderson later says this is one of the biggest mistakes or the biggest things he thought you know that he made as a Reds manager was this play right here. Dick Williams brought in a pinch runner, Alan Lewis, for Marquez. And Sparky told... Pedro Bourbon to check the runner, but not throw over. Bourbon did throw to first, ended up falling behind to Gene Tennis. So Anderson pulls Bourbon, brings in Clay Carroll, and Clay Carroll gives up a hit to Gene Tennis. I hate that guy. <laughs> so Tennis is at first, Lewis is at second. They send Don Mincher up to pinch hit for Dick Green. Anderson left Clay Carroll in the game to pitch to Mincher rather than going to his left-handed pitcher, Tom Hall. Mincher single to right field. Tied the game, and then with the game tied, and the winner ran a third. Um, drawn in infield for the Reds, Angel Mangual singled, and the A's have the walk-off 3-2 win and a 3-1 to lead in the series. Things are looking pretty bleak for the Reds at that time, right, Bill? Things are looking real bad for the Reds. So what happened in Game 5? Well, we're still in Oakland, and Reds had hoped, or Sparky had hoped to, to go back to, to Gary Nolan in game five, but his arm still wasn't right from game one, so he had to go to Jim McLaughlin. And they were going to be facing Catfish Hunter. And Rose led off the game, and he hit a home run off of Hunter, but that freaking Gene Tennis hit his fourth home run of the series, a three-runner, in the bottom of the second to put them up three to one. Dennis Mankey hit a home run in the fourth to make it three to two. Uh, McLaughlin got pulled in the fourth after he walked Bando to lead off the inning. And the A's took a 4-2 lead on a single by Marquez. 
In the fifth, Tolan drove in Morgan, and it was four to three. And the Reds tied it up in the eighth on a Morgan walk, steal a second. He got driven in by Bobby Tolan off of Raleigh Fingers. In the ninth, Geronimo singled, and he went to second on a sacrifice bunt, and third on went to third on an error by Sal Bando, and then he scored on a Rose single. So it was five four Reds going to the bottom of the ninth. Grimsley pitching in relief, and he walked Gene Tennis. And he got relieved by Jack Bellingham, who gave up a single to Dave Duncan, who was later the pitching coach for the Cardinals and then the manager for the Cardinals, which sent the pinch runner, Blue Moon Odom, to third base, putting a tying run on third base with one out. And this was a this I, I remember this play. Billingham got Campanaris to pop out to Morgan down the right field line. Uh, Morgan waved Perez off and made the catch, and he looked up, and here's Odom streaking for home. Morgan planted to throw, and his foot slipped, and he fell. And he jumped up and threw a strike to Bench, who was blocking the plate, and he tagged Odom, and the Reds win 5-4, to four, and the series is 3-2, to two, and we're going back to Cincinnati. Joe Morgan making things happen. I love it. So the Reds take two out of three in Oakland, and, and so they're still alive as they come back to the Queen City. At this point, game six, there had been five one-run games up to this point. And, and the Reds were facing elimination still, though, for the second straight night. And Gary Nolan would take the mound for Cincinnati. For the A's, it was Vita Blue. Uh, several Reds later on would say this is the only time the A's saw the real Reds all series. And, and whether that's true or not, whatever that means or not, you can make your own judgment. But it's the fact that the Reds played that day, their offense certainly played like we had seen them play for most of the year. It was a scoreless game in the bottom of the fourth. And when Johnny Bench took uh, Vita Blue deep, gave the Reds a one nothing lead, the A's tied it in the fifth. And the Reds went back in front in the bottom half of that inning. Concepcion got a uh, sacrifice fly uh, in an RBI. So the Reds are up 2-1 uh, to one. in the sixth inning. Bobby Tolan single, still second, and scores on a Tony Perez hit. 3-1 to one Reds. Then the bottom of the seventh, the Reds just basically erase any doubt about what the outcome was going to be. They score five times on four hits, two walks, two stolen bases. It's 8-1 lead. The Reds go on to win. Stars of the game, in addition to the lineup, obviously, Reds pitchers. Uh, Gary Nolan was only able to go four and two-thirds, but he uh, only allowed a run on three hits. And in the bullpen, uh, Ross Grimsley, Pedro Barbone, and Tom Hall pitched uh, four and a third innings of uh, shutout baseball. He gave up only four hits. So the series is tied three to three. Broke the Reds' seven-game home World Series losing streak dating back to the 1961 series. Not a, not a stat you want to hear. Before we get to Game 7, and Bill, I want you to tell me what happened in Game 7, but since you've been talking about Gene Tennis, tell, tell us what happened uh, that day involving Gene Tennis. Kind of the scary thing. I mean, the Reds, I assume the Reds has got an anonymous, phone, or an anonymous phone call to the Cincinnati police that threatened if Gene Tennis hit another home run, somebody was going to shoot him. And this was just about a month after the, ma- the, the massacre in Munich, and so they took this really serious. And, and on Sunday, uh, which was the game seven, they arrested a guy with a gun at, at one of the stadium ticket windows who was making threatening remarks about Gene Tennis. That, that's taking your baseball a little too seriously. Way too seriously. But game seven, from a baseball context, was serious. Set the stage. Tell us about what happened in the final game of the 1972 season. Well, it was a, it was Sunday. And again, it was a, a cold, rainy dismal day uh 56 plus at riverfront and billingham went to the mound for the reds and it was blue moon odom for the a's and the a's jumped out in front one to nothing in the first uh angel marquez hit a line drive to center field that tolan misplayed he came in jumped up and, and it went by it went off his glove for a triple and then tennis hit a bad hop grounder over Mankey, 
and it was one to nothing A's in the first. After Rose opened the first with a single, Odom then retired 10 in a row before Morgan walked into fourth. Dick Williams had moved tennis to first base for game seven to get Dave Duncan behind the plate, trying to slow down the Reds' running game. Odom threw to first base seven straight times trying to keep Morgan close. Now, when was the last time in, in baseball you saw a pitcher throw to first base twice, much less seven straight times? Not often. No, it's been a long time. Anyway, finally Morgan took off and Duncan threw him out in a close play at second. Bottom of the fifth, the Reds loaded the base with one out. Perez had doubled, Geronimo walked, and then uh, Hunter replaced Odom and he walked Concepcion. And they bring Pal, Pal McCray up to pinch hit for Billingham. And I, I remember this clear as day. McCray came out of the tunnel. I assume he'd been stretching or something. You know, who knows? Maybe he was in the bathroom. I remember it being the first pitch, and I don't remember it for sure. That I'm not saying it was absolutely the first pitch. He hit a ball that, that Rudy caught up against the fence in left field for, for a sacrifice fly to tie the game up one-to-one. Rose followed that up and ended the inning with an out. But the A's had come back in the sixth. Borbone had come in for the Reds, and he gave up a single to Campaneras. And then with two outs, the freaking tennis got another got an RBI double, putting the A's up two to one. Then Bando just crushed the ball to center field. It sure looked like it was catchable, but Tolan grabbed his leg and stumbled, and the ball landed in the middle of the warning track. Tennis scored, and the A's were up three to one. Tolan went off the field with a hamstring problem. This was the end of Bobby Tolan in Cincinnati. After misplaying the ball earlier and then this pl- this ball here, he never regained the the love of the fans that he'd had before this. So in the Reds' eighth, Rose leads off with a single. They bring in Holtzman to relieve Hunter, and Morgan hits a low liner past the first base guy. And, and Morgan said later that he, he immediately he was thinking three. Well, Rose got a, didn't get a good jump, and he said he had to hold back or the ball would have hit him. Plus, Hagan, who was who was playing defense for the for the A's, he brought him for defense at first base, had dove for the ball. So Rose kind of had to work his way around him. So he said he was more worried about getting to third base and not getting home. And Grammas initially signaled Rose to go, but then held him up and threw up the stop sign. Well, they brought in Raleigh Fingers for, for Holtzman with second and third. And Joe Hag popped up to short right field for the first out of the inning. And then they walked the bench to load the bases. Perez got a sacrifice fly, scored Rose, so now it's three to two. But the rally ended when Fingers got Mankey to fly out the left three to two. In the ninth, Fingers got Geronimo and Concepcion. Then he hit Cheney with a pitch. And Williams went to the mound and thought about bringing him white to blue to, to try to swing Rose around and make him hit right-handed. But Dave Duncan talked him out of it. And Rose hit the ball really well, but Rudy caught it in left center field, and the A's were the world champions. So in the seven-game series, the Reds fall short once again. The pitching was uh, superb, though, uh, 2.17 ERA over the seven games. Uh, Billingham threw 13 and two-thirds, didn't allow an earned run. Tom Hall threw eight and a third, scoreless. Uh, Tony Perez hit 435 in the series to to lead the Reds. But a disappointing end to what had been an awfully good year. Reds go 95 and 59 in 1972. And in attendance, drew 1.6 million, which was fourth highest in all of baseball. Bill, what are some of the thoughts about the 1972 season? We try to wrap up what this team was in the context of the Big Red Machine. Well, one of the things that 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 will come into play later is their June draft was a disaster again. They they only had one player who made the majors, a guy named Dan Dumoulin, pitched ten innings in the big leagues. Uh, Gary Nolan was 13 and two on July the 13th. Looked like he you know 
looked like he was headed to a Cy Young, uh, but arm problems limited him the rest of the season. He ended up with a 199 ERA, which was lowest on the team since Dolph Lukey in, in 1923. Grimsley went 14 and 8 with a 3.06 ERA after getting called up in May, and Tommy Hall went 10 and 1 with a 2.61 ERA, and he even started seven games. Injuries you mentioned to the pitching staff, and that was really kind of uh, one of the themes of 71. And the same thing in 72, Gullet's hepatitis limited him to 16 starts, and his ERA of 3.93 was a career high. You said Nolan uh, missed a month with muscle spasms, even though it did look like he might be on his way to a Cy Young. And after he returned, he made an off-balance throw on a ground ball and felt something pop in his arm. Doctors couldn't find anything, as doctors often couldn't in 1972. And the team... Uh, including Sparky Anderson, started thinking that it was actually mental, and, and no one resented that and kind of grew bitter with Sparky for questioning his injury uh, on that. And there's a, a long history of the team kind of fighting with Gary Nolan about that. It clearly was his arm and not uh, not his head. Uh, he, he did finish uh, second in the ERA that season. He did get enough innings to qualify for the ERA title, finished second, tied for fifth in Cy Young voting with uh, Clay Carroll, and ended the season 15-5. and five. Steve Carlton won the Cy Young that year. Uh, 27 uh, wins for a Phillies team that only won. 59 games. Um, think about that. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. Insane. Insane. And a 12.1 war as a pitcher. It's almost inconceivable uh, at this time. Yeah. That, that's why Steve Carlton is a Hall of Famer. Speaking of Hall of Famers, Johnny Bench won his second MVP. He hit 270, 379 on base, 541 slugging, 40 homers, 125 RBIs, and again, beat out Billy Williams. So uh, Bench wins in 70 and 72, but uh, several other Reds figure in the voting. Joe Morgan finished fourth in the voting. Pete Rose twelfth. Clay Carroll thirteenth. Bobby Tolan twentieth. Uh, and, and, you- and, Mor- and Morgan had led the team in WAR. He had a nine point three wins above replacement compared to Bench's eight point six. And that would only be Morgan's third best career season, as we'd find out later. He led to, he led the league in, in runs, walks, and on base percentage, and was second in stolen bases. Yeah, the Reds had three with more than six wins above replacement that season, including Rose, who was. At 6.1, according to BaseballReference.com. So a, a disappointing end of the season. And where's where's Bob Housem in his head as the Reds finish up this? A disappointing season in some ways in that they didn't win the World Series. But also, it's a the Reds get back to where they felt like they should be. They're in the World Series. They win another pennant, to their second and third year in three years. And so uh, you have to be feeling kind of optimistic because it's still a, a, a very young team. What, where was Bob Housem uh, after this season? Well, before we get to Housem, I, w- I want to talk about two real quick things. One is the Reds pitching. You know, we, we always talk about the hitting, the offense, and all that kind of thing. This Reds team, where, where they had injuries on the pitching staff all season, was still third in runs allowed per game in the league. They were .29 below the league average. Their ERA was .24 below league average. They had 25, and, and just to show the way they used their staff, they only had 25 complete games. The league average was 42. But they had 60 saves, and the league average was 30. And we had talked earlier about how, how the Reds' offense was going to change the way they play baseball. Well, they had jumped from from having 59 stolen bases in 71 to 140 stolen bases in 72. They would be first or second or first or third in stolen bases every year between 72 and 77 peaking with 210 stolen bases in 76 and never being below 140. So it's a change in the way the Reds played baseball, and it started in 72. It is a complete transformation, not just in the style of play, but in the roster as well, wasn't it? Yeah, they they really worked, you know, they really went to what Talzman had talked about. 
more speed, more defense. They wanted to cover that outfield. They wanted to steal bases, and they wanted to play really good defense. And, and you talked about Hausen, and, and Hausen, when they made the trade, he, he thought—I mean, he—he he thought the Reds should have won this series, but he really, when they made the trade, he thought they were two years away from being the team that they could be. And and this loss didn't determine didn't deter him from that mission. He still had a club in transition. He thought even at this point there were only twelve guys left from the seventy team, and there was no reason to believe that this team couldn't take that final step in nineteen seventy three. The question is, would they take that step? You'll find out in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Building the Machine, a brand new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. To get each episode of the show delivered to you automatically, subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio. You can find us at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, essentially wherever you find podcasts, we're there. Many of the facts, figures, and anecdotes from today's episode came from BaseballReference.com and the books Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder, Big Red Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arardi, Ball Four by Jim Bowden, and The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Cincinnati Reds by Chris Garber. Until next time, for Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying, so long, everyone. <laughs>